0: Really, it is about resilience at the end of the day and understanding for me, especially being the head of intelligence, how can we apply threat intelligence to that resiliency? How can we help that mission of business continuity go further and how can we help the decision makers within all these firms and with the sectors themselves understand what they have to prioritize because if budget wasn't an issue, if time and manpower wasn't an issue, then you could work on all the threats all the time, couldn't you? But you can't. You know, People have to prioritize and that's where threat intelligence can really lend a hand to say that these are the pertinent vulnerabilities this is what is being exploited in the wild and be able to help people make those decisions for their budget and for their time constraints.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Maniacs Defenders Advantage podcast. I'm your host, Luke McNamara. And today for an episode doing a deep dive on the financial services industry, I have with me today, Teresa Walsh, the Global Head of Intelligence at FSISAC. For those of you who aren't familiar with FSISAC is, it's the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center. Their mission, Teresa's background, and what they've been doing, and sort of their window into how the financial services landscape has evolved, I think will be very interesting to get it to. So Teresa, with all that being said, how are you today? Good morning.
0: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very well. The weather here in London is starting to get much better, actually. <laughs>
1: excellent. That's right. You've had a very warm summer, unseasonally, it seems.
0: We have, but it's always nice to have something a little different, isn't it?
1: True. I'm really excited for this discussion today because I think that this is an interesting industry when you look at the private sector and you look how organizations have evolved to be more agile around information sharing, to share insights into what's happening into the threat landscape. And this is, I think, one of the oldest sectors where this has been going on we're going to get into all that today, but first, just with with you, what's kind of your background and how did you find your way into working in cyber threat intelligence in this particular sector?
0: Well, I kind of fell into cyber, to be honest. I started out my career on the government traditional intelligence, if you will, really just coming out of... Graduate school looking for a job and finding it with the Navy to begin with. So I used to work for the Naval Criminal Investigative Service as an intelligence analyst. And that was very interesting and exciting. And of course, the government's been doing intelligence analysis for a long time now, where the private sector is really just getting into it. So when I first got into the private sector, it was with a bank. The first thing I told them was that I'm not a hacker, you know, so (laughs) why do you want me to do this job? And they said that it was okay because really what they were trying to do from the private sector side was introduced that element of professionalism they wanted to get past the ioc stage where everybody was looking at cyber intelligence as ip addresses and and not actually intelligence the way we thought of it in the public sector and so that's how i got my start i was working with other former government people and got this introduction into cyber threat intelligence and the wonderful world of the finance sector
1: And I mentioned this is an interesting sector to look at. And that's true for a number of reasons. But I think one in particular is, and I've experienced this kind of globally, when you work with different organizations, and you look in the different regions, first and foremost, you usually see government as one of the more mature and capable entities. And, you know, folks like you coming out of government and going to places like the financial services sector, you often find that's the second most or even some regions may be even kind of on par with government in terms of their capability, the personnel that they have, their understanding of the threat landscape. Obviously, this is a sector where they have a lot of resources to throw at that problem. And I think FSISAC in particular, I was was interested to kind of reading up about it. This was started back in 1999. And so this is, I think, one of, if not the oldest, ISAC where there was kind of the early days of realizing there does need to be information sharing across particular sectors and industries. And there's a lot of I hate to use the word synergy, but there's a lot of benefit to sharing insights that everyone's seen across their tax service. So specifically with FSISAC, how has that kind of evolved their mission over the years? And, you know, your experience coming from government, coming from the public sector, how has that kind of helped shaped your views in this space?
0: Yeah, it's a really good point because the finance sector I have found has been so mature when it comes to cyber threat intelligence specifically, especially the banking sector, I would say. And that's probably because they're just regulated so much. You know, They really did need to have good solutions to address cybersecurity. And they were hiring a lot of people from the government. And I think it was a natural evolution for them to start talking about information sharing and intelligence sharing. And it was very interesting for me FSISAC is now almost 25 years old, and you're completely right. I think we are the oldest ISAC in the world, um, definitely in the United States. But it was a first step towards this journey that people said, we're competitors, but that's okay, because we're all getting attacked by the same thing. And that's where they kind of made that long, multi-decade journey now that we're on to get to this point that we see ISACs as a concept in multiple different sectors. But we are trying to professionalize, we are trying to grow to use those best practices from the government side. As I mentioned, you know, governments have been doing this forever. <laughs> you know, the United States Intelligence Agency has been around for decades. I live in the UK now, they've been around for centuries. So it's really interesting to see how we're trying to get those best practices over to the private sector. And I think really the basis for me is that intelligence is not just ones and zeros. It's not IP addresses. It's not domains that you can check on. It is actually enabling your stakeholders to understand the threat landscape so they can do something about it. And now that's all the buzzwords you're hearing, isn't it? It's about operational resilience. It's about defeating ransomware. It's about third-party risk management and things like that. And those aren't mutually exclusive areas. In government, government counts on intelligence to inform the decision makers on the policies they're going to set. So we now need to transition that to the private sector more and to try to get them to think along the same lines, not treat it just as give me a million IOCs this year, but give me the information I need to know to make my company safer. And of course, for FSISec, it's not just about the single company, it's about the sector. And since we're international, it's about the world as well. So if you do kind of track those 25 years that we've been on, you see how both FSISec and the sectors have grown towards those goals in the end.
1: I'm curious your thoughts around sort of the operationalization of intelligence, because one of the things that I've seen working with customers as a threat intelligence vendor over the years is that this is a space that has matured a lot. And especially when you look at something like the financial services sector, you have such a broad range of different capabilities, maturity, insights, how organizations want to consume intelligence, what they're going to use that for. And you think about those other parts of their business-making decisions, where they're looking to input threat intel. How have you seen that evolve and maybe discuss some of the challenges or the differences in, in dealing with, you know, you have some very, very mature entities that understand how to use threat intelligence. They've been doing this for a while now, but then I'm sure you have much smaller, maybe credit unions in a particular region that are less resourced and they're kind of starting out their maturity journey. What's it like working with and servicing that broad range of different types of of entities within the financial services space?
0: It could be a little bit of a roller coaster in that because we are working was such a diverse group of stakeholders in that sense. And so if you're if you're thinking as an analyst, you have a set of stakeholders and you're trying to arm them with as much good information, accurate, objective information as possible. But the problem we do have is as you rightly stated, a huge degree of separation between the most mature and the least mature. And for us it's a, it's an ever continuing journey to try to adapt to that. In some cases The most mature guys—they seem like they could be easy because they know what's going on. They have their own intel teams. You know, they're keeping ahead of the curve but at the same time you do have to then adapt. You know, what can you do that's more beneficial to them? That's of value to them. And intelligence we always ca- talk about the so what. What does this mean? What does it mean for you and how can you use it? And so sometimes the so what is for those bigger companies is much different to the smaller credit unions. I came grew up in a really small town and we had a Farmer State Bank in our hometown and after I left, we got the one ATM and their approach to cybersecurity was was going to be completely different from the banks that I ended up working for one day. If I talked to them, who would be my neighbors (laughs) in the town, If I talked to them about cybersecurity and things like VPNs and firewalls, they probably would have looked at me like they were completely lost. And for that reason, they outsource quite a bit of things. There are companies out there that do specialize in managed service provision, provision of services, I should say. And they do specialize for them, for those small companies. Because I don't expect my next door neighbor in my small town to understand DDoS mitigation. That's not what he's there for. He's there to be a banker, but he can turn to other companies. And so we as FSISAC have to adapt to that as well. We actually allow MSSPs, managed um, security service providers, to join the sec membership because we recognize that they do have such a unique handle on those smaller financial institutions. But at the same time, we do want to talk to them because, again, it's not just about consuming all of these indicators that are out there. It's about understanding how to use them. And so when we have those conversations with, you know, maybe even a CEO who has two hats on his head for being the CISO and being the CRO at the same time, we need to enable him to understand what he needs to know to make sure that he doesn't get in trouble with the regulators about cybersecurity or that he knows how to handle cloud issues or breach issues. So it is a huge back and forth between our most mature members and the least mature members to get them on those pathways. But that's why we do also have not just intelligence as a key pillar for FSISEC, but resilience. Because I always say that I can write intelligence reports all day long until I'm blue in the face. But if someone doesn't know how to use it, then it's useless. And so we do need to focus on the resilience side as well to try to make them as secure as possible. And if that's working with them directly or working with their MSSP or other providers, then we'll do it. You know, we're just trying to make them as far down the maturity scale as possible.
1: Yeah, I like those thoughts on kind of meeting them where they're at and that focus on resiliency and doing what you need to do to ensure that for all parts of the sector. I want to transition a little bit and, and we're definitely going to talk some more about resiliency, but talk a little bit about the threat landscape when it comes to financial services today. Kind of like the maturity and the makeup of the members. Uh, this is when you think about the actual threat landscape itself facing financial services, it's changed a lot over the years. Thinking back to Operation Abba Bill or The era of widespread banking Trojans like Dyer, you know, you have the evolution of like North Koreans, hackers targeting the financial sector into the modern problem of ransomware today. As it's always kind of cliche to say that the threat landscape is becoming more complex, it does seem to be more complex than ever. And that's true for financial services. So how are you thinking about with that breadth of things? How are you thinking about the nature of the threat landscape today as it impacts your customers?
0: I would say it's fair to say that it's getting more complex, but I don't think that's necessarily because cyber threat actors are getting more sophisticated. I think it's because technology itself is getting more complex. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we weren't all online. We weren't shopping online. We weren't paying for groceries online. We weren't gaming all the time (laughs) online. The world has changed and has evolved. And I think cybersecurity and cyber threat intelligence is evolving along with it, basically. And so you now have cryptocurrencies, you now have APIs where you can connect to lots of different third parties, you have lots of different interdependencies that I think people are realizing more and more. But you have had the example of a few attacks that have hit companies that maybe most people had never even heard of, like, who had ever heard of SolarWinds before their incident happened. And so those incidents, especially now that they're in the public eye, I mean, if you think about it, even five years ago, cyber was an occasional news story. Now it's in every single day, your news feed. So people are, are seeing that. They're understanding it more. And so I think it's more in your face as well. It's an everyday occurrence that people get this constant flow of cyber attack information ransomware, third party risk, the latest of what legislation is doing. And of course, when you do have like a hot war of what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, where you have nation states that are also actors in themselves, cyber threat actors in themselves, it raises that bar a little bit higher. So I think in that sense, it is more complex because the world is more complex with the technology that we're having and how frequently the it's in the news and it's in your face. And so I think that it gives that added feeling of being more complex. Now, when it comes to the threat landscape itself, we're still dealing with vulnerabilities. We're still dealing with malware. We're still dealing with you know, the interdependencies between companies and how that certain attacks can move laterally to affect their customers and things like that. So in, in some sense, it hasn't changed as much. But I do see the financial services especially focused a lot on third-party risk, much more than they were in the past. It's always been a topic. But nowadays, you see it as very much mainstream. And I think things like SolarWinds has really helped that quite a bit. Understanding your third party landscape, understanding their third parties and fourth parties and how that can impact you at the end of the day. You see a lot of regulators getting into the cybersecurity space now. A lot of financial regulation about cybersecurity, operational resilience or digital operational resilience, as some of them call it, and also now third-party risk management. A lot of them are now recognizing your major third parties like cloud service providers as integral to the financial sector. They're not just other companies, vendors out there that are mutually exclusive of your sector. They are part of your sector because they are the backbones of infrastructure. And you do see that with current legislation. The EU has DORA for instance, that they are looking at uh, implementing the UK. Actually, just recently, the Majesty's Treasury announced that they are going to start labeling certain providers, especially cloud providers, as critical to the finance industry. And some of these companies are probably even going to get some level of regulation by the financial regulator, even though they're not financial institutions. So it is really interesting how this is evolving and how this will affect everybody at the end of the day as well. I mean, for FSISEC, we actually started a program this year for critical providers to the financial sector. And we recognize the fact that everybody uses these companies. If they have some sort of issue, it could cause an operational resiliency problem for the financial firms. It could cause business continuity issues where you cannot do business because your cloud provider is not working or something else is not working. And we have the plethora of incidents or um, not necessarily cyber attacks, but sometimes just technical issues that have happened where things have shut down. Canada just had an outage because the telecommunications provider there had some sort of technical misconfiguration that caused a lot of companies to stop working. So it's all these things where we're understanding the interconnectedness of each other for banks or for other financial institutions. You know, we're working so much online now that if you don't have telecommunications with a proper Internet connection, you can't do your work. If you're sitting in a building that has no power because the energy company has, for some reason, shut down, you can't do work. And so this is where we're, we're now exploring. It's not just about the threat landscape for you. It's about the threat landscape for everybody you're connected to.
1: Yeah, that seems to be, I mean, you men- mentioned kind of the growing complexity or with just, you know, all the different things that are digitally interconnected today. That seems to be an area when we discuss systemic cyber risk and the continuous pursuit of trying to mitigate that that we seem to increasingly be doing a better job of at least mapping out the edges of what that looks like and everything that is, you know, that sits that financial services sits on top of or that is dependent on everything you just sort of outlined there. But it also continuously is sort of magnifying the problem and giving us a greater sense of everything else that needs to be addressed beyond just the resiliency of the banks themselves or key financial transactors themselves. So do you see the sort of in the pursuit of kind of mapping out and describing the problem? Do you think that we're making good inroads at starting to address some of those areas, even getting outside financial service itself to some of these other areas like telecommunications? How is that kind of playing out in terms of being able to start to mitigate some of these these areas of concern?
0: Yes. So there are quite a few examples of cross-sector collaboration. In the U.S., there's the National Council of ISACs. I believe it's actually up to about 16 or 17 different ISACs or ISAOs as some of them call themselves, where there are different organizations that group together like-to-like companies. So there is an Energy ISAC, there is a Telecommunications ISAC, there is an Oil and Gas ISAC, things like that. And so they can talk amongst themselves, but there is a recognition that it is important to talk about um, different issues we might all be seeing. Phishing, for instance, is probably the number one tactical level actionable intelligence that we receive from our members. Lots of phishing campaigns out there, as I'm sure you're aware. (laughs) And a lot of them are malicious with malware, or they might be asking things like your banking credentials or credit card information, things like that. But that's something that's really almost everywhere, isn't it? My parents might be getting phishing emails and things like that. So that's the type of thing that we can collaborate on cross-sector. But when it comes to sometimes these interdependencies, we actually do exercise with each other. So some some countries, for instance, in the US, they do have a CISA DHS-sponsored exercise where multiple sectors can actually participate. This past year, we also participated in NATO's CCDOE Locked Shield, exercise, which again brought together different sectors, public and private sectors, but even had like space sector in there and others as well. So there is a drive to look at how we are interconnected, but also try to exercise that out to say, if something did happen, how would we even feel that? What would you see? Would it just be your computer turning off? Or would it be something else that alerts you to the fact that another sector is having a problem? And so those things too exist. And sometimes we will refer to tri-sector because finance sector realizes the interdependencies between the energy and telecommunications companies, as I mentioned. And so sometimes we will do tri-sector type work to understand understand where those commonalities happen. In the EU, there is now a growing level of ISACs as well, and they are starting to collaborate. Maybe not as a a mature scale as the NCI does in the US, but it's certainly there. And I do hear that from other countries, Malaysia or Taiwan and Japan, they have ISACs. And this is something that is evolving. In the Netherlands, for instance, where we do have an office, we do see other ISACs operating all the time and interacting with the financial sector.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned lock shields because that was going to be one of my questions as well, is how much do you see the mission of your organization going forward, going beyond just sort of that tactical intelligence and information sharing, uh, you know, maybe around a phishing campaign and even sort of strategic intelligence products and awareness, but being an input into resiliency, preparedness and the role of exercises, the role of actually testing systems close to a, a live fire drill as possible. How much of that do you see being part of what your organization is going to be focused on, you know, going forward, and even the importance of that for ISACs in general? Those sorts of exercises.
0: I really think that they're so important because it's the best way to prepare for what's to come. And I saw this great TED Talk one time where they talked about your brain capacity during a crisis and that basically if you're confronted with a crisis, your brain literally stops working in some sense. And that's the entire theory behind exercising is to kind of build that muscle memory, build that ability to not panic and know what to do. And I do think that's where we're driving from. FSISAC actually has done this for years now. We don't often talk about it, and maybe we should, and maybe this is a great way to, to get that out there, that messaging out there. But we do exercise this quite a bit. You know, we've been involved in those for over a decade now. And really, it is about resilience at the end of the day and understanding for me, especially being uh, the head of intelligence, how can we apply threat intelligence to that resiliency? How can we help that mission of business continuity go further and how can we help the decision makers within all these firms and with the sectors themselves understand what they have to prioritize? Because if budget wasn't an issue, if time and manpower wasn't an issue, then you could work on all the threats all the time, couldn't you? But you can't. You know, People have to prioritize and that's where threat intelligence can really lend a hand to say that these are the pertinent vulnerabilities. This is what is being exploited in the wild and be able to help people make those decisions for their budget and for their time constraints. But indeed, we have been working on this type of issues for years now. For the Lock Shields one, it was very different because it was an opportunity to talk about cross-border and how that public-private partnership does work. Public-private partnerships are not a new thing for the finance sector. We expect and ask for a lot of information from government partners, depending on what countries we're working in, because you know, hopefully, they're, they're going to be the ones who see this type of attack information coming that's relevant to us. And so we want them to tell us when they're seeing that type of information. But Lock Shield was a way to test it in a hot war type of environment, a conflict where there's a physical conflict with a cyber element how would we find that out? What are those pathways of communication? And sometimes it's just assumed that things are going to work out that, oh, yes, if if this happens, I'm sure there's a way. But then that's why you exercise. You exercise to make sure that that path is clear for everybody and that they're able to know that if something's happening and if energy or telecoms or the banks are impacted, that there is a way for that communication to happen. It could be with the national certs for the U.S. The U.S. cert is part of CISA. could be with a national ISAC or something more. And, you know, we love working cross-borders as well. And so it was a good way to kind of talk about if there is a cross-border situation, not just cross-border for the finance sector, but cross-border for lots of people, including a military hot action, how would that translate into helping the finance sector protect themselves, protect their customers, and prevent any sort of cyber attack from becoming a huge impact that could potentially shut down services?
1: One of the things that came to mind as you're talking about that is I think we've really seen a lot in the last several years of international governments, not just here in the United States, but in Europe as well, become a lot more forward-leaning when it comes to intelligence sharing and even attribution. And calling out and naming threat actors and nation states engaged in malign activity. And I think, you know, to your point around cross-border information sharing and information sharing between sectors, that seems to be something that I think is incredibly helpful and, and useful. I am curious, you know, if you were to look in your crystal ball when it comes to intelligence sharing, when it comes to information sharing, you know, given that you're part of an organization that's been doing this for so long, how do you see that? evolving. This seems to be one of these areas. Anytime anyone talks about information sharing, it's always, we need to do more of this. We need to do a better job at this. I think there's also a lot of dependencies. People often don't talk as much about the training component and needing to be working with sort of trusted partners, not just from a trusted stance, but also understanding that when they're sharing IOCs or they're sharing intelligence about what they're seeing, that they are up to a level of maturity and capability where they can identify those things and properly share those in a way that's true to the the validity of that information. But in terms of you also think about things like resiliency and other areas where maybe Intel traditionally hasn't been an input into the decision making of an organization, it seems like Ukraine has also kind of to your point about Lock Shields, woken a lot of organizations up to thinking about this in a much more holistic manner, much more geopolitical driven manner. So with all that to say, are there particular areas where you see intelligence sharing and intelligence usage within financial services going forward and maybe particular things that people should be looking for, keeping an eye on in this space?
0: It's a really great question. And yes, yes, and yes, I think it has to evolve. And I think the way it should evolve is along the lines of strategic intelligence and enabling the decision makers. This is so important for risk management, for operational resilience, and really just in general, you know, safeguarding not just the companies themselves, but the millions and even billions of customers we have around the world. It is about trying to help the sector be more resilient and the only way to do this is to look beyond The IOC. Beyond the sim, I usually say, you know, go beyond the sim. Don't just ask me about IOCs. Talk about what does this all mean? The so what. Again, we go back to the so what. What does it mean for you as a company if you're talking to your chief risk officer who might not know that much about cyber security? How do you explain to that chief risk officer he or she needs to know to protect their company, to make those choices, to give budget to controls and policies that they need to do to keep up with the future? You know, we're talking about things like quantum, these algorithms that you need to now protect yourselves and changing the way that your company is structured in some ways to keep up with this new competition as well. You know, we have a lot of challenger banks out there, digital only infrastructure, currencies, not cryptocurrencies, but digital currencies like central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, how that will affect wholesale payments. There's a huge world out there that's just evolving. And we can use threat intelligence to help it all help it continue help it thrive help protect it and obviously I'm an intelligence person so you know I'm very you know probably biased and passionate about it but you know I do believe that this is the way forward this is what the public sector the government has been doing as I mentioned for decades is using intelligence to drive high-level policy so why aren't we doing the same thing in the private sector we need to do that and this is where the transition needs to happen so I actually just finished writing a journal article uh, for a cybersecurity journal just on this. It's in the peer review stage right now. But it's all about trying to move forward past that tactical operations level of thinking about cyber intelligence and moving that towards enabling your C-suite of and your board of directors to protect your company better. And most people would probably say, well how do we do that? And sometimes you do have to start at the beginning. I even point out in my journal article when you're looking at priority intelligence requirements, for instance, don't just say you're you have a requirement about DDoS attacks or malware. Why do you have an intelligence requirement about DDoS attacks and malware? You're probably looking more towards how that's impacting your company, but your company has a risk management framework that they're probably working against. So tie your PIRs with your company's risk framework. Your company is looking at different types of risks, maybe a risk of an outage that their customers can't access their online banking system. Then that means that your priority intelligence requirements are about cyber attackers, cyber actors, and the tools that they're using to create that outage. And that's how you kind of start to put the pieces of of the puzzle together. You're not, as an intelligence analyst, we're not writing intelligence for ourselves. We're not writing intelligence for each other. I've heard CISOs actually say, well, threat intelligence is only good for other threat intelligence people. And I'm like, well, then you're using it the wrong way. <laughs> you know, it, it, Threat intelligence is made for the decision makers and the decision makers should be actively asking for things like this. I think this is definitely the way forward in practice. But what I do see along the lines of information sharing is that it is getting wider. You know, before, you know, the FSISAC, as you mentioned, started in the United States to almost 25 years ago, and the ISAC was a kind of a new concept, but now you're seeing them pop up all around the world. In developed countries, in less developed countries, in different sectors, not just finance, you're seeing this concept of an ISAC grow and mature. But Why is it growing and maturing? And what forms is it taking? For us, we were just kind of expanding for the past 25 years and just getting more people involved in what FSISEC is doing. But now what I see is kind of an evolution that's also going back and forth to not just the big groups of people talking to each other, but also wanting to collapse back down into those small groups. And so we have to adapt and say, how do we keep that trust going in such a large group. And sometimes what we end up with is we tend to term as communities of interest where you do have much smaller groups get together to do the information sharing. And then it's our job to connect the dots, to understand that what maybe a group in Malaysia is talking about is similar to what a group in Brazil is talking about and be able to connect those dots, bring people together, have them talk in the same forms about their favorite threat actors, their favorite malware, their favorite intelligence analysis tools and things like that. And so I see FSISec over the past 10 years, especially going from a little bit more of a passive role where we provided that platform for everybody to now a much more active role because it is so expansive, it is so complex that we have to really actively understand how to connect those dots, how to keep that trust and that momentum of sharing going as it grows and evolves.
1: Well, for folks who are just listening to the audio, because this is just audio only, um, I've been nodding my head a lot throughout this, but especially when you were talking about analysts thinking about this, the so what and, and applying this beyond just a, you know, an analytic product for other analysts, but this it should feed the decision making process of the organizations that we support, because it's so very easy to get myopic. It's so very easy to view this as a a security organization only effort and initiative, cybersecurity and threat intelligence. But it really should be, if it's being utilized correctly, I think it really should be informing business decision-making. And there are so many ways that I think there's still, even for very mature organizations, ways that they can utilize their threat intelligence for those purposes. But well, we've talked about a lot here. Any sort of a final thoughts or even maybe predictions on what we will see in the threat landscape for the rest of the year? No, it's always one of the hardest things to do in threat intelligence, but any thoughts on that or, or where we will see the financial services industry go in the next couple of years?
0: I think we're at the cusp of a great evolution because, like I said, you pointed out at the beginning that things do seem to be more complex. And I said that some of the threats are the same. It's the environment that they're in that's more complex. It's the technology that's more complex. And I think that's just getting bigger and growing ever more, isn't it? And I think the pandemic actually leapfrogged us forward by putting everybody online at the same time and now expecting that. You do see a lot of people working from home now. And so I think in some sense, we are still adapting in this phase of post-pandemic, post-quantum, post-everything introductions, and now trying to find our footing of what does that all mean in the long run. And I think you are going to see much more financial regulation. You're going to see government regulation. You're going to see hopefully a lot more cross-sector collaboration as we go forward around the world. But I do think you're going to be seeing a lot more professionalization in different countries when they talk about things like threat intelligence and information sharing. Because like I said, so many people are doing it. I can wake up and see a message from Australia. And right before I go to bed, you know, see somebody in Peru talking about a different threat. And it's really nice that the world today can actually bring us all together to talk about these things. But now we need to kind of put action to those voices and really kind of push it along as well. And so I won't speculate too much about threat intelligence because predictive analysis, the brass ring, isn't it? We do have to keep up with the threat actors and really the third party landscape is where we've been focused at because we do see that we've spent so much time these past few decades making ourselves as secure as possible But that circle now has widened around to our third parties, as we saw from the solar winds and other attacks, that what happens to them does matter. And we can't just ignore it because it's not within our little firewalls. We have to pay attention to our providers and the world around us. And that's going to cause us to grow more. And I think in that sense, you're going to be seeing a lot more activity on the third party risk space.
1: Well, Teresa, it's been fascinating hearing about everything that you've all been involved in, connecting communities of interest, thinking about risk and systemic risk in the space beyond just even the sector itself. It seems like there's so much going on right now. So I appreciate you taking time out. And hopefully the heat wave over there in the UK subsides soon. Things return a little bit more to normal. But thanks again for this, this is a fascinating window into financial services.
0: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here.
1: Take care.